Hello. Before we start, this episode includes explicit language and conversations about sex and topics which may be triggering for some listeners. Parental guidance is recommended. So we tend to think of the bedroom as a purely private space. And yet, what arouses us, what we imagine for ourselves, the kind of fantasies we have, these are things scripted for us by the political system in which we operate. The oppression that happens in the bedroom is continuous with the oppression that happens in other spaces, the oppression that happens in the streets. So I think it's becoming just increasingly obvious that sex is a political phenomenon, right? From Me Too, the rise of social media, the rise of online dating, and how all of this interacts with what we think of as the most private part of ourselves, our sexual desire is becoming an unavoidable conversation. This is Amir Srinivasan, and she has unfinished business. She feels there are some serious issues with women and pleasure. Welcome to Unfinished Business, the podcast that explores how feminist activism in the UK has its roots in the complex history of women's rights. I'm Polly Russell, a curator responsible for an exhibition of the same name, which is open now at the British Library in London and around the UK. The exhibition is brilliant. If you can visit, please do. You won't be disappointed. But I wanted to get deep into some of the themes the exhibition covers, from women and mental health to domestic violence to comedy to cycling and much more. Each episode, a different presenter with an area of expertise or a burning question to ask will be using objects from the exhibition to explore ideas and themes with invited guests. Today, pleasure and whether or not desire is as free as we might hope. I do think we need to put so much more emphasis on female pleasure. I think that it is so important for women to understand their bodies. We want a clean new word for the modern relation between evolved man and woman. So just because people aren't celebrating sex, I suppose I want to say, doesn't mean they aren't obsessed with sex. It dawned very slowly that men are completely useless sexual partners for women. Let's think what the ancient word sex denotes to the average mind. At the start, you heard from Professor Amir Srinivasan, and as you can tell, she's fed up with the current state of pleasure. She is interested, among other things, in the history and philosophy of feminism, and in recent years has been particularly focused on the thorny question of sex. Her forthcoming book, The Right to Sex, explores sexual relations in an age of incels and male sexual entitlement, social media and porn, and the Me Too moment of increased awareness of sexual harassment and violence. This is why I wanted her to explore the politics of pleasure for this episode. Amir clearly feels that there's a problem with pleasure, so in today's episode, I'm introducing her to a variety of people with whom she can wrestle over this issue. We'll be taking a longer view by exploring some historical objects from the exhibition that are linked to pleasure. And it is a 19th century. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Would one of you like to describe it? It's a penis, um, an ivory penis with a. With it's a dildo. Of... 
And we're also going to get steamy with the creator of the hugely popular drama series, Sex Education, to explore how female pleasure has been depicted in media and entertainment. How do you have feminist sex? How do you have sex that doesn't come from all of the images that we've seen and processed like ever since we were really young and like how much of my desire is actually my desire or is it something that I've internalized since I was you know born and from fictional sex education to the real life classroom we'll be meeting a group of 17 year old women to hear what's the state of sex for their generation and how the online realm has affected their attitudes to pleasure I'm so excited about this of course you are. <laughs> I met Amir at the British Library and started our chat with a burning question I had to get off my chest. And I should add that we're good friends from years back. Isn't this just a bit of a red herring? Because isn't the point of pleasure that it is outside politics, that in the realm of the bedroom, we're all free and we're our natural, imaginative, creative selves and the politics just doesn't come to play? You can just say no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that the idea that sex can be this place of free play and outside politics and a place of imagination and creativity is a good ideal for us all to have. But we have to recognize that sex as it currently exists isn't for most people, and certainly for most women, a place of creativity and play and freedom from politics. The bedroom and what happens in it is very much shaped by politics, but also what's worst about our politics, by systems of misogyny, racism, ableism, and so on. And so when did you come to start thinking about that there were real differences for men and women in thinking around pleasure and the politics of pleasure? It's a strange thing because on one hand, I think it's something that women intuitively always know because if you think about how male and female desire is reflected in everything from Disney films to mainstream pornography, there's always a kind of standard heteronormative patriarchal script, right? A script where the woman is passive, is an object to be desired and consumed. But this is something I think many of us know and implicitly recognize, but we only bring to consciousness sometimes when we read things. And for me, it was reading feminist texts, beginning with Simone de Beauvoir's uh, The Second Sex when I was at university. And is it one of those things that once you've seen it, you can't stop seeing it? I think that's right. I mean, I remember I was at a dinner after a talk I gave and this very famous male academic said to me, well, my, my problem with this kind of feminist way of thinking about sex is that for me, sex has always been this realm of free play and imagination. <laughs> it's the place where I'm really outside of politics. <laughs> and I said to him, well, what does your wife think about that? <laughs> but I think she would have a different take on the question of whether sex is always just a place of free play. And there's a particular reason why this is all so relevant now. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that my students are the first generation, true generation of internet pornography. That is to say, they came of age sexually under the regime of widespread instant access porn. The mainstream of porn that's free 
follows a very traditional script, a script that's centered around male pleasure, the domination of women by men. And what was amazing to me when I started teaching feminism to my students was that almost all of them, women and men alike, felt oppressed by the sexual script. So this moment is very important in this debate. This isn't like you're talking about an old debate rehashing it. This has a particular texture now because of the sort of medium in which people are encountering pornography, desire, sex. Absolutely. Increasingly, the producers of porn are just people with webcams. It's not even major porn houses anymore. Those things are going out of business. Before I introduced Amir to her guests, I wanted to know what she was hoping to gain from the conversations. What I want to have a sense of is what has changed and what hasn't changed, and how much hope we should have, what work still needs to be done. I'm certainly open to be challenged, but in a way I would really love it if I turned out to be wrong. So I'm very excited about speaking to the young women in particular. And what would make me happiest is if it turns out that they really do feel like empowered sexual agents, where they feel like they're getting to have the kind of sex they want on their terms and not on the boys' terms. Hey, I think we're ready to start. Hi, guys. Go. Go. And so to a school in West London. We took into the classroom a copy of an object from the exhibition, a magazine from 1981 called Teenager, it was produced by an organisation called the Mother's Union and set out to provide some useful information about growing up, including what seems from the perspective of today, some fantastically unhelpful and dubious advice. Why I wanted the young women to read it was to see how out of date it seemed and to ask them if attitudes and expectations have changed for young women in relation to sex. Here's a flavour of what it contained. Boys gossip as much as girls and some tell tales about their girlfriends. A girl who is known to be easy will get a bad name, and though she appears popular, she may find the boy she most likes fighting shy of her. The effect on parents... We gave the students some time to take a look. I'm not sure if anyone else is finding this mildly excruciating to read. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to read out bits of it that oh, are God most no. excruciating? Please. Oh, God. Mean, she yeah. has the most... The more passive role is definitely... Uh, bit of a yikes. <laughs> this is the bit about physical excitement. Yeah. So it's describing physical excitement. And what does it say? It says... A man, because he is the more active partner in reproduction, is more directly affected physically by sex. He can very easily feel excited if he is with a woman who he finds attractive. A woman may feel equally attracted by a man, but as she has the more passive role, her physical feelings are usually less easily aroused. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. I mean, it seems sort of the man is the focus of it again. I mean, obviously, it's fairly awful to read, but it does feel very archaic, which is almost reassuring to read and think, no, goodness, that you would not come across that these days. You, you use the word archaic, and I think that's right. It's, it's kind of astonishing to read this. And in fact, when Polly showed it to me, I said, wait, this is from the 1970s? I mean, it feels like it's from the 1930s, right? So it does feel like we've come a really long way. And yet I'm interested in this idea of the woman as the, the passive participant in a sexual encounter with a man. Do you think that's changed? Absolutely not. I think that is very much still the way in which it is framed, even in education. You do not discuss female pleasure at all in sex education. It's not a thing that comes up. And when you're taught sex ed, do you learn about non-heterosexual sex? Because obviously this is very straight sex. 
No. No. <laughs> yeah, because I'm bisexual, but I still wouldn't know how to do anything with a woman. So what about boys your age? Where do they get their information about sex? The guys I dated have watched a lot of porn and they came, I think they came into the relationship with ideas of what the sex was going to be like. I think the first time anything happened, he said, oh, I didn't realise it was going to be like that. And that made me feel quite uncomfortable. A lot of the women I know say that they feel like the sex that they eventually had, especially with when they had sex with men, was very much scripted by pornography. Mm. But I'm interested to know, like, what is that script? What expectations do you think porn gives boys who then are having sex for the first time? About what pleases a girl, definitely. I think they see something and think that kind of works for all women. There have been some times when a guy has tried to do stuff and it's been alarming because... I would never have asked for that in a million years. And I've just had to just say stop because it's uncomfortable. And they all kind of think it's going to follow this kind of pattern where you don't have to put a lot of care and time into it, that you can just touch a woman and that'll be it for her. And then, you know, that's all the pleasure she needs. You don't really have to put kind of any thought into it or any time or love. We're both close to tears right now, so (laughs) you'll have to forgive us. Amir and I were so moved and impressed by how honest and candid the students were with us and also struck by how sex remains this difficult place for them as it probably ever has been. Oh, we haven't spoken about masturbation. And Polly looks like she's going to faint. <laughs> I I feel like fainting when I say the word. But in part, I remember being in school and the boys would just talk about wanking all the time. Teenage male masturbation is just considered kind of funny and, and harmless and... Normal. Natural. Nor completely normal and natural. Uh, whereas female masturbation certainly wasn't in my day. My day. Um, and I'm interested to know, is there still a stigma around it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I only spoke about it with my friends kind of once and they were surprised that I'd had any kind of experience with it and they asked me for all kinds of details and how to do it. It was just not something that I think they'd ever kind of thought was for them and that they ever thought they could really do it. The conversation then moved into the online realm. I meet a lot of people online through mutual friends and a lot of my relationships have started from talking online. Is it a place where people ask people out, chuck people, which we used to do with notes, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) The old fashioned passion written note, handwritten note with an ink pen. (laughs) Yeah, I think my most healthy relationships have stemmed from friendships I've had prior and relationships and people I've known before I started talking to them. Recently, I've had quite a few unhappy ones and they've stemmed from talking online. And my most recent relationship it wasn't happy and it ended very badly because I found that he was two different people. There was an online version of him, which was very sweet. But in real life, when we would hang out, he would mock me and he would be quite rude. He would not care about my emotions nearly as much as he did, he seemed to. And he would push for aspects of relationship and sexual aspects of relationship, which I wasn't ready to give him because I'd never had that kind of face-to-face connection with him before. I hope you unfollowed him or whatever. (laughs) Appropriate action. First of all, sounds like you've had a hell of a time with it. (laughs) Mm, But also, (laughs) 
I completely agree and I relate to you on that one. Mm. And I was in a relationship for a while and most of it was just us texting. And like, we saw each other very regularly, but it was always slightly uncomfortable almost. Like we didn't get along as well in real life as we did via text and we were together for like a year and we broke up via text. But that was normal for us because that's just how we talked and how we communicated. And if we were having like open vulnerable discussions about things that ever happened to us and it was very mm. deep, it would happen via text because you couldn't do that face to face because both of us were quite socially awkward people. It was, you couldn't have that conversation if you were just sitting opposite talking to one another because it was too physically uncomfortable. And it's clearly not just these women who are feeling the effects of a disconnect between the online and the real worlds of pleasure. We're going to leave the classroom for a time to head back to the British Library and meet Dr Zoe Strimpole. Zoe's been researching the impact of the online world on women, particularly in relation to dating and relationships. And I wanted Amir to meet her because she's a historian of gender, relationships and feminism, sometimes shortened to a professor of sex. That is the shortcut people like to take. I always try to protest and say it's not sex, but it involves sex, I suppose. Online dating is an area she's particularly interested in. Zoe feels that sites like OkCupid and dating apps like Tinder, which seem to offer up so much choice, have empowered women to choose who they want to date and have sex with. But she also recognises that they're a breeding ground for some uncomfortable gender dynamics. So one example would be the rise and prominence of what is known colloquially as the dick pic, which is, you know, men sending unsolicited pictures of their anatomy to the kind of women they've matched with. Sometimes it's solicited, but very often it isn't. And and I use this as an example, which most people have heard of this example by now, but it's if you've done enough Tinder or app dating, you, you begin to pick up on a very sort of hostile atmosphere. And these pictures are not being sent even in a kind of friendly way. There's a sort of submerged violence to this kind of stuff. And it, it often just does come down to this. Men feel entitled to put women in the sex box. And the result is it's the old, same old thing. Women are saying no, and men are getting furious. You know, I've criticized dating apps for being reductionist about what we desire. So encouraging people to think in very simple terms about their wealth preferences or things like that, bringing out, in fact, what's worst in our politics sometimes. But, you know, I've had pushback from people saying that dating apps can be very good for different kinds of queer people in allowing them to explore queer sexualities and find partners that they wouldn't necessarily be able to find out in the real world, as it were. Another feature of dating apps is the way in which they bring out, maybe underscore, sexual racism. So, uh, you see this in both gay and straight dating apps, right? So you see people explicitly saying that they're not interested in interacting with people of certain races. For example, Asian men are systematically discriminated against by white gay men. Black and brown women are systematically discriminated against on straight dating apps. It's a really interesting one because people do feel, I think, that their politics, what they think is right, whether they're you know, anti-racist and so on, that, that who you choose for your sexual partner should somehow be outside of that. At this point, I decided it was a good time to take more of a look backwards and introduce Amir and Zoe to an unusual object from the exhibition. This is the original object which a collector of antique erotica has lent to me today to show you. And I, I, I'm going to show you what it is because I think it's somewhat surprising and perhaps kind of unsettles our idea of sex and pleasure in the 19th century, perhaps. 
It's extremely precious and very rare, and it is a 19th century. <laughs> Sorry. <Wow. laughs> would you like? Would one of you like to describe it? It's a penis, um, an ivory penis with a. With it's a, a dildo. Of, it's a dildo with sort of decorations around the tip. It's very detailed, and then there's a sort of sp- woman splayed with her legs open in a sort of dress with the dildo, an image of the dildo actually going into her vagina. A 19th century ivory dildo, complete with an engraving of a woman apparently masturbating. It's nothing if not surprising. It's very anatomically precise, delicately carved, and it's hollow. Is that right? Yes, it's hollow. And it interestingly has these two two holes holes here Mm. on the side, which we think, or the collector thinks, means it may have been used as a Mm strap-on. So it sort of raises questions about who this was for. You know, was it used by men? Was it used by women? Was it used by women with women? We know it's 19th century. It was bought in an auction in Paris, but of course it's got the the words, the whirly gig, so we think it's probably originally English. But apart from that, we know very little about it, apart from the sort of raising this question about wasn't everyone incredibly repressed in the 19th century and nobody talked about sex. So, you know, it kind of unsettles perhaps this kind of stereotype we might have. Perhaps you could speak to that, Zoe. I think we can definitely say perhaps there was less day-to-day talk about sex, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't kind of happening. And in fact, some of the dirtiest possible pornographic kind of writing came out of the, the 19th century. Walter's diaries, for instance, which even I couldn't, I mean, I read about one page of it and it was so shocking it's a sort of story of this Victorian man's secret sex life, and it's just shocking. And there are there are sort of other examples of that. So I think we have to be cautious. Certainly historians would be very cautious in saying that there was any period in time where actual sex itself was super repressive. And one of the big problems, of course, for historians is that it's very hard to get into people's bedrooms, and it's very hard to know what actually goes on. Norms about talking about sex, of course, were extremely different But Michel Foucault, the one who really kind of made us rethink the idea of um, Victorian repression, would say that the Victorians could do nothing other than talk about sex. I mean, the institution, the schools, police, kinds of sexology, new sciences, medicine, was becoming more and more obsessed not only with sex, but with policing sex and where it was taking place and where it shouldn't take place, including sort of tying the hands of children who were feared to be masturbating. And that was going on until the mid 20th century. So just because people aren't celebrating sex, I suppose I want to say, doesn't mean they aren't obsessed with sex. Sex repressed doesn't mean sex abolished. Um, So one thing I was wondering about this object we have here is, is this an object that speaks to female pleasure? I I mean, I'm sort of interested in the kind of pornographic image on it, which does not seem to me to be an image of a woman in raptures. And it's in Mm. fact a kind of image from a male perspective, Mm -hmm. right? It's an image where this woman is lying back and is being penetrated by this object. I mean, how do you read this, Zoe? I'm interested to know. Do you I think you're you're absolutely right. You're onto it, which is that as with today, the much of the equipage of sex and sexual material and certainly pornography is by men for men. And I think we do have to be cautious about sort of saying oh well there's a dildo therefore women's pleasure was being taken seriously mm-hmm. i think your instinct is is right this very well might have been something that ultimately fed back into the male pleasure mm-hmm. route rather than being primarily for women i mean it would have been so unusual for a woman to sort of what would have been the social space in which you could have had your dildo sequestered 
This dildo is a really complicated and unsettling object. I feel sort of uncomfortable about it. It's unclear for a start whose pleasure it was for, what sort of relations it facilitated. That it's made of ivory is a stark reminder of histories of imperialism and exploitation of land and labour, which are entangled with histories of racism and misogyny. So let's leave that unsettling object on the table for now and move ahead in history to the 1970s when the women's liberation movement really kicked off. Women's groups started appearing all over the UK and these inspired various campaigns for legislative changes like equal pay and job opportunities, access to free contraception and abortion on demand and protection from domestic violence. But women's liberation movement activists also challenged cultural assumptions about women and how they should look and behave and be treated. In short, a lot of women started questioning every aspect of their lives, including their sex lives. They were experiencing the first decade where technically, thanks to birth control and abortion, thanks to no-fault divorce, which had meant there was a sudden influx of divorcees on the on the dating market, and various other therapeutic narratives and the idea that sex was good for you and all this kind of stuff. They were genuinely experiencing freedoms and there was pleasure relatively unmediated by politics, relatively unmediated by politics in that. So I just think it's important to keep not... I can see there's some concern now suddenly springing up. Sex is always mediated by politics, but things are really improving through various changes in the 70s for some. And we've also got to be thinking about the gay and lesbian civil rights movement that's going on at the same time. There are genuine and significant and important advances there for gay men, for uh, gay women. But what does real sexual freedom actually look like? I thought Zoe might be able to help here. I don't think it ever exists and, or could exist. And I think that's good because I think the point of sex is that it only functions through a kind of strictures and rebellions and ups and downs, backlashes. I think there has been absolute progress in terms of freedom, but I don't think an idea of a sexual utopia sounds at all appealing because that'll be someone's sexual utopia and it's not going to be somebody else's sexual utopia. So I think we need to just keep bumbling along and just generally doing what we can to kind of allow the most people to do the most things. You're a historian, so you take the long view. And are you hopeful specifically about women? Yeah, and I, I think that we there's still work to be done, but I think, I think I am hopeful in the sense that you can see massive improvements already. For instance, I think it's much more acceptable now for women to not just know that they can have agency, but to exhibit agency, to take the lead in terms of their sexual lives. That used to be hugely stigmatized. I think we know a lot more, everyone knows a lot more about female sexual pleasure and how it works. Those in themselves are two enormous steps, sort of there's less shame around. And one TV programme which is really destigmatizing the shame around sex and female pleasure is the ongoing Netflix series Sex Education. I'm addicted to wanking. My pubes are out of control. I wish I could be a normal kid with a normal dad, with a normal dick. Let me give you some condoms. Oh, thanks, Mum. I feel the show is really redefining how we talk about sex, pleasure and the politics that are associated with this. 
It takes the history and the anxieties we've been looking at today and projects an idealised view of how we could relate to sex and pleasure. It's stylish, kitsch, fun, moving and often slapstick, but there are some serious messages underneath. The programme stars an insecure teenager, Otis, played by Asia Butterfield, and his sex therapist mother, Jean, Gillian Anderson. Otis ends up starting a sex therapy clinic in his secondary school, and of course, chaos, romance and hilarity ensues. I'm obsessed with the show, as is my teenage daughter, and I thought the programme's creator, surely an optimist about sexual politics, would be the perfect final guest for Amir a self-proclaimed sexual politics pessimist. Meet Laurie Nunn. It definitely feels, doesn't it, that the, the lack of talking about female pleasure just comes from a lot of men being very afraid of what might happen. It's sort of like, oh, if all these women learn what the clitoris actually does, there could be a revolution. Like, the world could end. Over to Amir. I think one of the things the show does is rethink what it means to have a sex education. Right. So conventionally, traditionally, we think of sex education as conveying information, right, information about pregnancy, about STDs, about condom use. And always in a way that's uncomfortable and not going to encourage any form of pleasure at all. Particularly with female pleasure. I don't know what it was like for you guys at school, but for me, it just was not mentioned Ever. Whereas no, I think no, it didn't the, exist. It I mean, it really exist. didn't exist. I mean, these 16 year olds we talked to, you know, they were so open and, and, and were so conceptually sophisticated. So I was like, oh, right, things have really changed. And then I asked them about female masturbation and they all looked slightly stricken and then said, well, no, it's a complete taboo. No one ever talks about it. You know, the boys talk about masturbating all the time mm. and no one talks about female pleasure in this kind of way. Yeah. And I also think there's in the way that young men are able to talk about, you know, can I say wanking? <laughs> about wanking. Um, <laughs> is Laurie. <laughs> this is the Sorry. British line. About, about, wanking on this you, can, you can say wanking. <laughs> about masturbation. Um, <laughs> is also quite damaging, I think, because it's it's done in a form of banter and ribbing each other. It's not really talking about any sort of vulnerability or intim intimacy. And I've thought about that a lot, actually. And I, I've always wondered whether it's because, <laughs> this is a bit graphic, but I think with men and like teenage boys, it's all very external. Like their, their bodies are out of control and, and it's visible. Everybody can sort of see it. It's out there. It's in your face. Whereas I think with women and girls, it's a much more internalised experience. Can you stop? Have I done something wrong? No. It's just, do you actually want me to do any of that stuff? Yeah. I think so. It feels like you're performing. Tell me what you want. I don't know what I want. No one's ever asked me that before. Steve says his thing is girls properly enjoying sex. He says he can tell I'm being fake. Well, you should probably think about, you know, things you enjoy when it's just you. Alone. Ugh, I don't do that. Yuck. In the scene, Laurie, where Amy masturbates for the first time, was that decision to put that there in that way very much sort of tied up with this? Yeah, I wanted that scene to feel really euphoric for that character. And I think we start the series with um, Amy having a very graphic sex scene with her boyfriend at the time, Adam. And there's a real feeling that porn is influencing 
that sex scene because she's being incredibly performative. And then it's not until later in the series that you realise she's never actually questioned, what am I getting from sex beyond just giving pleasure to somebody else? And I wanted, I remember I wrote in the script that it had to feel sort of ugly and untamed. And I think that the director, Kate Heron, really captured that feeling in the scene. You know, she's not wearing sexy underwear. She's wearing her like old granny pants. She's got um, her silly t-shirt on. She's, you know, she's masturbating (laughs) on her belly. Yeah, it's a very joyful, euphoric moment for that character. You know, the show is really groundbreaking in how it talks about and depicts female pleasure. Why are there so few shows that address this subject? I think because there are still so few shows written by women. The film and TV industry is still very much dominated by men. And I think until you really give women the opportunity to tell stories and to tell multiple stories and even to tell the same stories over and over again, that's something else I find very frustrating is it's always this idea that like a woman can only take up a certain amount of space can only tell one kind of story and then, oh, we've heard that woman's story. Now we don't want to hear any other women's stories. Whereas men have been telling, you know, the same gangster story for, like, (laughs) forever. It's like, we've heard this story. We know this story. One of the great things about the show, I feel, is that it isn't afraid to tackle difficult subjects head on. One particularly memorable storyline features the character Amy. She's shown travelling on a public bus when a man standing close to her starts masturbating. The story which unfolds shows Amy supported by a group of friends going to a junkyard and smashing objects in shared fury and anger at what has happened. May I ask a question about what I think of as the darkest storyline, the sexual assault that Amy suffers on the on the bus and the long lasting kind of traumatic repercussions of that, which she doesn't sort of deal with initially. I'd just be interested to know more about how you chose that storyline and taking this character who's very much her own sexual agent and then subjecting her to this Mm -hmm. and how you were thinking about what that moment is supposed to mean for the show. Well, I knew it was a storyline that I really wanted to explore. It was based on a very similar experience that I had a few years ago on my local bus, which, you know, unfortunately, from uh, telling the story and talking more openly about it, I've realised just how many women have had horrific experiences on public transport and also just in general, just in life on you know, walking around through the world. So I knew that it was something that I um, felt very passionately about and I wanted to talk about, I guess, in more of a cathartic way um, as a writer. And Laura, you, you know, when you started sharing your story of your experience, all of these other stories come out. And that's what always happens when women come together of any age, right? Mm. You tell a story which you think is particular to you. And no, it turns out that it's not just general, but it's political, right? So something that seems highly personal is actually the structural thing. One thing about sex education is that it's as much about the boys as it is about the girls, right? And I think you do an amazing job of sort of showing this kind of aspirational image of what how young men could be more open. And often it feels like the women are really the powerful ones. And I think there's a kernel of truth to that, certainly. But there's also, I think, just the reality that has always been the case, which is that men of any age still have the sexual power. 
and they have it um, one because they tend to physically dominate so women are susceptible to rape and other forms of sexual violence mm. at the hands of men but also because men control the reigning representation i mean that's part of why sex education made by a woman is an extraordinary thing right because usually representations of sex are created by men for male consumption and a certain eroticization of the subordination of women has been a central part of patriarchal culture and it can't ever be just about being more open it's also got to be about a revolution in the relations between men and women and girls and boys yeah <laughs> which <laughs> is sort of mind-blowing isn't it with sex education really the two core characters in the show are Otis and Eric and their friendship is very much when I'm writing it's my guiding light it's the thing I always come back to and um I wanted to show a friendship that was very consciously working against a lot of male narratives. So I wanted to show that they could be vulnerable with each other, that they could accept each other for who they are, even though they're completely different. And I think that in order for those changes to happen that you were talking about, Amir, like, I think boys have to become part of that conversation. Before we leave Laurie in sex education land, does Laurie believe pleasure is political? I think there is definitely a politics to pleasure and, and it goes back to the structural makeup of our society. But I also think that once you go into a bedroom and you're behind closed doors and you're with a sexual partner, I do think a lot of things go out the window because it becomes about that incredibly intimate experience between you and another person or you and yourself. And I think that's harder to intellectualize or police in that way. And that's something I, I personally grapple with that a lot. You know, how do, how do you have feminist sex? How do you have sex that doesn't come from all of the images that we've seen and processed like ever since we were really young and like how much of my desire is actually my desire or is it something that I've internalized since I was, you know, born. And I do think we need to put so much more emphasis on female pleasure. I think that it is so important for women to understand their bodies and to feel more comfortable taking up space. So has Amir's mind been changed? After hearing from all the guests, I caught up with her. What Laurie said about the importance of young men, both in her show and in the larger question of how to reshape sexual culture for and by young people is really, really important. And I would love more young men to be like that. And how do you become like that without seeing representations of it? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, of course, the show creates this fictional world with these fictional characters of young people engaging in sex. But, but we actually had a conversation with some real young people, these 17-year-old yes, women. And, <laughs> and I wanted you to sort of reflect back on that and, and think about your reaction to those young women and what they mm -hmm. said and, and what that says perhaps about sex education and how the sort of fictional and the real kind of collide in mm. perhaps complicated ways. I think the word collide is absolutely the right one. The world of sex education is 
bright and sunny and full of hope. But the world of these teenage young women we spoke to is, is I think, much darker than that. So one thing that I thought was kind of a similarity between our conversation with them and the conversation in that happens in sex education is that these young women were very frank with us, very open. And I was so impressed by their ability to just speak maturely about sex and pleasure and gender and feminism. But I do think that the show and the reality really came apart when they started talking about their experiences and their experiences with young men, which were frankly kind of depressing to hear. That was my experience of it. Were you depressed to hear it? Well, I'm always, whenever I talk to young people, I actually always come away feeling incredibly optimistic because they're always, they're so smart, they're so funny, they're so engaging, they're so political. You know, I, I sort of feel like hope for the future lies with them. It definitely doesn't lie with me. But of course, yes, it was sort of alarming and concerning just how tricky this domain is and perhaps more so than it was when I was younger and I wasn't having to encounter the kind of the online sort of realm of social media that that, I think, ramps things up in a way that wasn't the case before. It was very clear in our conversation with them that technology has powerfully inflected their experiences of sex, relationships, desire, desirability. I do think that there is an inflection point um, that has been represented by the ubiquity of internet porn and also the ubiquity of social media. And our conversation with those kids who were really brilliant spoke to that in interesting ways. And Amir, thinking back over the people that we've met, the objects we've discussed, I just wonder, has it just reconfirmed everything that you already thought or has it shifted anything in your thinking about pleasure and the politics of pleasure? I don't know if there have been major conceptual shifts, but that conversation with those young women is something I'm still thinking about. The urgency of these conversations and this kind of paradox where on one hand we have these young women who are so sophisticated and mature in being able to think about sex and feminism, and at the same time seem to me sort of as, or if not more vulnerable to practices of sexual domination, heterosexist discrimination and so on than even previous generations of women. And so I think I feel that paradox more keenly. I'd already sort of sensed it with my students who are who are a few years older, undergraduate students. So that has definitely made a lasting a lasting impression on me. Do you think that there's anything that we can do to change attitudes towards and behaviors around pleasure and the problems, the ambiguities that exist? I mean, is it just inevitable? I definitely don't think it's inevitable. I think patriarchy is a contingent, if very deeply embedded phenomenon. The answer is we need a a genuine sexual revolution. But I think one thing we learned from the sexual revolution of the 60s is that any revolution that does not center those people who are most depressed and dominated, and I don't just mean along gender lines, also sexuality, class, race, um, will not be a revolution that can really free anyone. Uh, So I think there are ways of moving things. There are probably also smaller steps to be taken. I think sex education is, is one of the major levers for social change. And you certainly see countries that have better sex education programs than the UK or the US for that matter. 
Where like Amir? Well, I mean, so certain Scandinavian countries, for example, where young people tend to have much healthier attitudes towards not only sex, but issues of gender equality, racial equality, and so on. And I think that is in part just because the education begins so early and has such a kind of strong moral framework. At the same time, I mean, sex education can never just be a matter of what happens in schools. And by the time kids show up in school, it's often just too late. Education is really something we as a society do as a whole through television, through media, through dinner table conversations, through everything that young people are exposed to. You've been listening to Unfinished Business with me, Polly Russell. This business is, of course, still unfinished. So join me in two weeks' time when we'll be speaking to the feminist powerhouse that is Jamila Jamil about mental health and body image. Thank you so much, Zoe, for coming and talking to us. Absolute pleasure. This was fantastic. Lots to think about. I want to keep going. Lots of pleasure. <laughs> so much, this was pleasure. pleasure. This was pleasure. I'm going to hide the dildo because I think it needs to go away in its box.